the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground for Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. For those of you that haven't listened to the show before, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And this show is in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, that's avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, and uh, we're going to be talking about really almost all three of those things with our guest today, Harold Burke Sivers, who wrote a book about Father Augustine Tolton, the first African-American to become a priest in the United States. But in the meanwhile, we'll spend a little bit of time about estate planning. Again, Connors & Sullivan is a estate planning firm, and maybe we don't say that quite often enough. But if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, you can – well, first you can email. Michael, where do they email us? If you want to reach us, you can go to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S at gmail.com. Askmikeconnors at gmail.com. And look, we'll get back to you if you want to ask us about anything, whether it be um, estate planning, whether it be about the radio show, or whether it be about the Civil War Roundtable of New York. You are more than welcome to reach us there. Okay. And again, you can always give us a call at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Now, today, as you just heard, you're joined by my son, Michael. My wife, Beth's in the background over here. I and we have. And we have one of our attorneys to help ask some of the questions that we have. Kelly Decker, welcome to the show, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Hello, everybody. Okay, what's the, tell us something about your background. Well, I was born and raised in Florida. I've been in New York for about 10 years now and at Connors and Sullivan for almost three years this July, which I can't believe. It's <laughs> flying by. <laughs> right. It's been an eventful three years yes, in any event, right? To say the least. Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> All right. So you have a question. Can you well, repeat we get, the question for us? Yeah, absolutely. I get this question a lot with the estate planning meetings, consultations, and people don't know the difference between a springing power of attorney and a general durable power of attorney. Yeah. And, and actually, that is a, a good question. Both of them, in some respects, have the same effect. Uh, a, a general durable power of attorney takes effect immediately. So let's say we have an elderly couple, they're in their 80s, 90s, uh, and, and they want to sign a power of attorney so the son or daughter can immediately start paying their bills, managing their assets. That's a you know general durable power of attorney. Now, some people say, hey, wait a minute, I'll sign a power of attorney to my son, my daughter, my nephew, my niece, but... I don't want the power of attorney to take effect until a medical doctor or a psychiatrist or psychologist. And, you know, those terms are up to you, you know, what conditions you put into it. But let's say until a medical doctor certifies that I am not capable of handling uh, my affairs in a competent manner, the power of attorney doesn't come into effect. Now, you know, sometimes you got to be careful what you, you wish for because, it's not always that easy to get a doctor to sign the forms. You know, you, somebody's in a nursing home, and to try to get in touch with a doctor 
um, to sign a statement saying you're not mentally competent to handle your affairs is not always easy. Now, usually if you have a family doctor, it works. And, you know, family doctors are usually very cooperative and they sign what documents we need to conduct business. But if somebody's in a hospital, somebody's in a nursing home, the staff doctors are not always cooperative. So you got to be very careful um, if if you do want the durable power of attorney to be a springing power of attorney, that's your decision. It depends how much you trust the people that are involved in your planning. But you got to be a little careful because it's not always easy to get that document signed by a doctor because you have a staff doctor, let's say, in a nursing home or a hospital. I'm not saying they don't care, but they don't care. And, you know, I've been in a position where we've had those springing powers of attorney, person's in a coma, we want to pay bills. And the doctor says, well, you know, I'm not sure if he can't mentally handle his decisions. He's in a coma. He may come out next week. And meanwhile, you're waiting, you know, you're, you're, you got the tax bill, you know, like it's it's April 15th and you got to pay taxes and you don't have the money to pay the taxes because you can't use the, the power of attorney. And one thing I think a lot of people uh, get confused, and Kelly, I think the difference between a power of attorney and a healthcare proxy. Uh, all the time. You know, one, one they do two totally different things for, for the person executing those documents. And the healthcare proxy, it's the medical decisions. If you can't make them, of course, the physician, the hospital, they'll ask you what you want for your wishes. And if you can't make that decision, then your proxy makes that for you, as noted on your healthcare proxy. And the power of attorney is your financial and your legal matters. Uh, again, if, if you can make that decision between durable and the springing, it's effective immediately for the general durable power of attorney or upon you being deemed incompetent with the springing power of attorney. Yeah, and again, for the most part, with our clients, we recommend if, let's say, the power of attorney is your, your children, a combination of your children, um, then I would recommend, assuming you trust your children, and I'm not going to assume, you know, unless we talk to each other, but assuming you trust your children and you, you trust them implicitly, then I would make the power of attorney a general durable power of attorney, not have springing language in it, because if they need it in, in, in case of an emergency, they can start using it right away. Now, the medical proxy is, uh, you know, that's automatic. The doctor's not going to talk to your children, let's say, if they're on the healthcare proxy, unless they feel that you're not capable of making a decision. And I know occasionally I get a call from, uh, let's say, I'm the healthcare proxy for a client who doesn't have any relatives, and I get a call from the doctor, and I say, wait a minute, doc, I think she's competent. I think she can make her own decisions. Well, I'm not sure about that. So, you know, there are different standards of whether, you know, what, persons that decide competent or not and that's one of the reasons with the power of attorney to avoid confusion i would just put the children down there assuming you trust your children sometimes you might have a nephew or niece down there you don't even know that well but there's your closest relative okay then maybe we put the the springing language and you know and another question kelly comes up all the time maybe you can answer this what's the difference between a healthcare proxy and a living will Right. Yes, we get that question on a daily basis. Um, and you, the healthcare proxy is the legally binding document. And we always explain indifference to the living will. The living will is your instructions for your proxy. Okay. That's something in writing that they can refer to if you can't make this decision and they have to make it on your behalf. It gives them an idea of, you know, life support, artificial nutrition, hydration, uh, do not resuscitate. That's what would be contained in the living will. Yeah, one of, one of the main questions, if you're in a coma, do you want to be starved to death? And that is a blunt way of putting it and maybe a little bit harsh, but that's the way you got to do it. Because I think some people sign living wills and say they don't want this, they don't want that, and realize what, they're, what they might be saying inadvertently is, hey, I want you guys to starve me to death if I'm in a coma. And, and maybe that's what you want, maybe you don't, but you got to give it you know, a little bit of thought. Michael, you had a question that was asked. Well, okay. What I was going to get into was still the the distinction specifically between the power of attorney and the healthcare proxy. But I mean, if if let's say someone turns eighteen, should they get a healthcare proxy? You know, you say it's probably not going to be used, but yes, you should have one because let's say for the sake of argument, you, the kid's going away to college, and they're in a car accident or something happens, and they're in a hospital. Well. You know, a lot of doctors, a lot of hospitals will not speak to the parents 
unless there's something in writing. They can't get access. They can't talk to the doctor unless there's something in writing, let's say, like a health care proxy. The same is true of power of attorney. Let's say you have an 18-year-old. They're in a car accident. And, you know, at the time, they can't quite handle things on their own. Well, we may want a power of attorney so the parents can take care of business, maybe pay their rent at their or room or board, depending on where they are. Um, and there are a hundred little things that could happen. So, you know, we can't go through it all. You know, pay for car. Sorry, pay for car insurance, registration, things like that uh, to, to, to more important things. And But. You know, you can't stress enough a power of attorney and healthcare proxy. If you have family members you can trust, and that's a big if. You, I certainly think you want to consider doing, you know, a healthcare proxy. You want to consider doing a, a power of attorney because probably you're never going to need it if you're 18, 19 years old. But at the same point, you might. And if you do, you can make a really bad situation worse and worse. And, you know, you, you could be in a position, let's say, a, a younger couple – Husband and wife. Husband has a premature stroke, and it happens. Uh, is in a car accident. Wife wants to maneuver assets to pay bills. Let's say they own a house together. They cannot sell the house. Let's say the deed is in husband and wife's name. The wife cannot sell the house without her husband's consent. And if he's not mentally competent, then that's where the power of attorney comes into play. So, you know, you know, a lot of times I stress, and I, I everybody needs a will, and I always say that. But I, I would say one thing. That if you have relatives you can trust, everybody should think about a power of attorney. And, and if you do have a son or daughter you trust, if you do have a spouse you trust, you're married more than a few years, I strongly recommend you think about doing a power of attorney. Especially if you're married, you trust your spouse, you want to protect your spouse, you want to be protected in case your spouse gets ill, then I would think about doing a durable power of attorney. And if you have a son or daughter you implicitly trust, put them on it. Now, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Thanks for joining us, as always. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash F Melia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503. The Guild for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. Welcome back again. This is Mike Connors, Ask the Lawyer. This time I'm accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. And my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Now, most of you probably know by now, but Kevin McCullough has a new show Monday through Friday at uh, 7 p.m. on 9-7 The Answer. He's still on Monday through Friday, 3 o'clock on WMCA 570 The Mission. And each week, Kevin takes an email question Ask it on behalf of his audience, and we try to answer that question. So take it away, Kevin. 
Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we talk with Mike Connors and get one of your important questions answered right here on uh, the radio broadcast hosted by Kevin McCullough. Dear Mike, says Tina, if you made a will before getting married, is that will automatically revoked when you marry, or do I need to make a new one? Uh, Mike Connors, what do you say? Well, the, the will's not revoked, and you should do a new one. I, I mean, I think that goes without saying. Now, uh, unless the couple signed a prenuptial agreement, or something similar prior to getting married, the spouse would have a claim against the estate if the will were not changed. But the will, in theory, would still stand. Now, there's one exception to this. If the person does a will signed before 1930, and it's still the law, the will is partially revoked. So if there's somebody out there who signed a will before 1930 and then gets married, He's revoking that will. <laughs> now, I don't know, he'd have to be at least about 110 years old. Right. So I'd like to meet him if he's out there or her if she's <laughs> out there. But, you know, in theory, the will is not revoked by a later marriage. All right. So good good news. Probably doesn't apply to anybody listening. But if it does, you know who you need to call. It's uh, I want to talk to that person. Con- yeah. Connors and Sullivan, uh, 718-238-6500. And you can also email your questions to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Again, 718-238-6500. Uh, and then uh, he'll also be answering some of your questions on his own broadcasts, uh, which come up Saturday morning at 8 o'clock on AM, 9, uh, AM 570 and FM 102.3 WMCA and Sunday morning starting at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Uh, Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors and Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors and Sullivan, plan now for later. Now, next up, we're going to have one of our Connors Corner interviews. And we have on, you know, historian, deacon in the Catholic Church, Harold Burke Sivers, and and he told us a story that we, I never had heard before about the first African American to become a priest in the United States. I'm in a good place in my life. And I'm energized by new adventures. I've got friends to laugh with. And a good relationship. But even though I'm kind of comfortable, I sometimes wonder... Is there something more? Could God in church be what you're looking for? Come and see at CatholicsComeHome.com. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Our next guest is Deacon Harold Burke. Is it Sivers? Uh, Sivers. Sivers, okay. And, you know, I was reading an article in a, in a magazine, Legatus Magazine, and he has a book out, and, and to me it's a fascinating subject. It's about a priest who was born into slavery and was ordained in the post-Civil War, and Deacon has a book about it. And what's the name of the book? Uh, Father Augustus Tolton, the slave who became the first African-American priest. Okay, so, you know, you, you really you think about all that stuff, and it really doesn't quite gel together. But where, where was Father Tolton born, and where was he born, and how was he slave? Yeah, so uh, Father Augustus Tolton um, was born actually in, into slavery. He, both his parents were slaves. And he, along with his uh, brother and sister, were also born into slavery in Brush Creek, Missouri. 
1854. Um, so what, what happened was, interesting enough, his mother was a wedding gift. And so his mother and father were on two separate plantations. Uh, the, the person who owned his mom, uh, his, his son got married and then gave her to his, to his son as a wedding gift. And so um, when he started his own plantation, he brought her, and then that's where he she met um, uh, Augustus Tolton's dad, John Tolton. They got married and had three children together. Now, uh, uh, Tolton, uh, uh, his father went off to fight in the Civil War and died uh, fairly early in the war. Uh, he died to go free his family. And the thing is, his mother never um, let uh, the young Augustus told to forget about his dad, always told stories about his dad and kept his memory and legacy alive in his heart, even though he grew up most of his life without his dad. And uh, they eventually escaped to the Underground Railroad into Quincy, Illinois. And uh, they were Catholics um, because that's what the slave owners were. Right? And, and in fact, on his on his baptismal certificate, it says Augustus John Tolton property of Stephen Elliott. Um, but when they got to uh, Quincy, Illinois, you know, they're in the north now, and then they figured, oh, you know, we can we can go to church and practice our faith. Well, they, they, they went from one church to the next, and they were rejected, not by the priests or the religious sisters, but by the parishioners. Right? They said, we don't, you know, Father, we're going to leave the Catholic faith. We're, we're not going to, we're going to pull our kids out of Catholic school. We're going to stop giving money if they continue to worship here. Well, finally, they got to the Irish church, <laughs> and Father Peter McGurr said, I don't care what these people say, you're staying. And he fought the people tooth and nail, but the, the Tolton family stayed. And um, and when Father Tolton received um, his first communion, he was a little bit older than the rest of the kids because he, he couldn't go to school full-time because he had to help his mother in a tobacco factory to, to, to raise money for the family and keep the family going. And so he received this first communion later. But after that first communion, the priest noticed, definitely started to notice something about the young Augustus Tolton and how um, how much he loved adoration and moved by his love for the Eucharist. And went up to him and said, "Do you think you think you want to become a priest?" He goes, "I could become a priest because there were no black priests at the time." Mm -hmm. He said, "Sure, I don't see why not." <laughs> Can we step so, back a second? Uh, how did, Can we step back a second? How did they escape from Missouri yeah, sure. into Illinois? Yeah, so through the Underground Railroad, as you know, were set up by um, uh, groups of abolitionists. And when they escaped through the Underground Railroad, they got to the uh, Missouri River, and then they had to cross. His mother got to a rowboat and started rowing the family across the river. And then, as, as literally the slave, uh, uh, the people who were sl chasing down the slaves were shooting at them. So, so she had the children duck down in the boat while she's frantically rowing across the river to get to the other side, you know, with gunshots whizzing past her uh, in the dark as, as she's trying to get her family to safety. Amazing story. Um, but, yeah, so, so through that underground, that network, underground railroad is, is, how, is how that happened. Um, so, yeah, so they, they uh, and so Father McGurr helped with his training, and, and when he was ready to go to seminary, every single seminary in the United States rejected him because he was black, uh, every single one. But eventually, the Vatican, you know, the, um, Father McGurr and through the efforts of some other priests wrote, the, wrote uh, to the Vatican, and they uh, accepted him. And so he went and trained as a priest over there, and, um, and he thought he was going to go to a mission country. Well, they sent him back to a mission country, back to the United States. <laughs> right, well, and, before uh, 1890, Quincy, Illinois. the U.S. was a mission country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And so, so the Vatican says, you know, the United States talks about freedom and liberty, so they need to practice what they preach. So they need to go back there and show them. So he goes back to Quincy, Illinois, and now this time the roles are reversed. The people are coming to his church, the, you know, the, the people of all races, they're, they're accepted in his church, and he lets them all come. But it's the, the priests now who have a change of heart. They're the ones that are saying, you know, they, they, in fact, they told the white parishioners, if you go to his church, it doesn't count for your Sunday obligation, that kind of thing. So he ended up uh, having to leave Quincy, and, and he went to Chicago, 
where the archbishop there welcomed him with open arms and basically worked himself to death. He died in 1897 of uremia, which is a complication from heat stroke. Um, he just, you know, worked, worked, worked. If, even though his mother um, uh, would, took care of him, his mother lived in the rectory and, and cooked and cleaned and took care of uh, things domestically while he was out preaching and, and out serving the people. Uh, he just worked himself to death, and he's buried back in the uh, to this very day at the priest cemetery in Quincy, Illinois. And his cause for canonization is uh, moving forward pretty well in, uh, right now in the Vatican. In fact, he's um, uh, venerable, and he just needs a miracle to become blessed, and then another miracle, of course, to become saint. You know, how familiar can you explain to our audience what the canonization process is, because. You know, obviously, some of our listeners are Catholic, and obviously, some of our listeners are not. Yeah, sure. So, um, first of all, when the church uses the title saints, okay, it, it's a, you know, St. Paul used the words that, that we're saints. And uh, obviously, we're all followers of God and believers of God, so that's what he means by this. So like the saints go marching in, that kind of thing. So, so anybody that's in heaven is a saint, plain and simple. Anybody that's a heaven, in heaven is a saint. But the church has designations for those um, people who lived exemplary lives um, and by their witness and example um, and through the miracles that uh, that were uh, done on, on, um, but, uh, on through their intercession, we know that they're in heaven. So all when the church doesn't designate someone formally as a saint, they're saying that we know that that person is in heaven. You know, so my mother, for example, died back in 2009 she's not going to be formally declared a saint by the church <laughs> right but but she but i believe i mean she, you know uh that that she's in, in heaven uh with god you I know mean, that's just my personal opinion i, I hope she's there <laughs> i know in fact i, I know eventually she's going to be there because she was a saint on earth trust me she's an amazing woman um but so, so uh but the process includes um there, there, there's a first of all there has to be a formal uh, kind of inquiry, you know, so the, and that is started by someone who goes to the bishop, but the bishop may start it himself. And uh, so they collect um, all kinds of information about the person, things that they've written, testimonies from people. And that collection of documents is sent to the Vatican. The Vatican reviews everything. And then if they find nothing to in those documents that stop the process, then they, um, uh, declare the person a servant of God. And then a, a very formal process starts um, uh, with the Vatican, and it goes, including, you know, they exhume the body, and there's a medical examiner and forensic and uh, uh, anthropologists that are there to examine the body and make sure that that's the real person. And um, a bunch of other things happen in that process. Um, and if, if that all that goes through, then they're named uh, venerable. Then there needs to be two miracles. The first miracle where they're declared blessed, and then the second miracle where they're declared a saint. Although the Pope can waive the second miracle um, if, if, he, uh, if, if, he, if he so chooses. Um, so that's basically just a quick overview of how that process works. It could take decades. <laughs> or uh, centuries, in some, in some uh, cases, hundreds of years, depending. Yeah. Let me ask you, what was the what was the first miracle? There, there is no. We're still they're still, still looking for a miracle it. Okay. Right now, okay. Tolton, Yeah. So he's so he's venerable, um, but if if this if the miracle uh, if a miracle goes through, then he'll be named blessed. Okay. Now so let me. Still waiting for that first miracle. How does he become educated? I mean, where? Do, you know, a priest, a priest today, a priest back then was an educated person. How did he become educated? Yeah. So when he went, so when he went to Father McGurk's parish, um, the 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 uh, there had to be a compromise because the people, in fact, did not want their children um, to, to to be in the same classroom with uh, with, with uh, black kids. And so they ended up, um, and because he had to work in the factory, he couldn't attend school full time. So the sisters, it was, they're, they're called the school sisters of Notre Dame. 
that was the order of nuns that actually uh, took him and his family and other black children as well and, and taught them. In fact, not only did they learn the basics, he, this was a, uh, a group of sisters from Germany. So they also learned German. In fact, Father Tolton was fluent in uh, obviously English as well as German, Latin, and French as well. Um, in fact, his very first mass in the United States was for the school sisters of Notre Dame at one at their hospital chapel in Jersey City, New Jersey. And if you go there today, there's still a plaque on the wall that says this is the place where the first black priest in the United States celebrated his first mass. Um, so it's a wonderful uh, tri- uh, tribute to them. And so that and then, then after he finished school, um, there were a series of priests that would train him in philosophy and in theology in order to prepare him for, for the seminary. And then, of course, when he was accepted, he was formally trained at what's called the Propaganda Fidei, the Propagation of the Faith. It's a, it has a different name today, but the way that seminary worked back in the time of Tolton, it was a Vatican seminary for men that lived in countries that did not have a formal seminary. So, for example... In uh, one of the countries in Africa, let's say Tanzania, there were no seminaries back then in Tanzania. So when a, a young man was identified as uh, you know, a good prospect for the priesthood, he was sent to the Vatican seminary, trained there, and then sent back to his country uh, as a priest. Now, why did Father Tolton want to go to Africa, let's say, instead of going back to the United States? Because um, that propag- since that uh, the propaganda fidei trained priests from other countries that didn't have priests um, from mission countries, he thought that since I'm training here, they're going to send me to a country that doesn't have a priest. So he thought he would go to one of the countries in Africa, on the continent of Africa, or to Borneo, or to some far-off place to be a priest. And he was very happy with that, you know, to, to serve God. But, and, but like I said, they did send him back to a missionary country, the United States. Uh, <laughs> and at first, boy, he was not happy. Um, he went straight to the Adoration Chapel and he said he felt like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Take this cup from me, you know, <laughs> if it's your will, because whatever your will is, God. And so he finally accepted the decision to send him back to the United States. During his lifetime, did he ever meet any other African-American priests later in his lifetime? Or do you know? Um, no, no. So so he, but he, obviously he did meet other African-Americans, uh, but he was the one that really paved the way. Um, so he, he was alive. He went, in fact, he attended the very first National Black Catholic Congress, which was organized by Daniel Rudd. Um, and eventually the Josephites, uh, which is um, a religious order from Great Britain, established a seminary for specifically for um, African-American candidates for the priesthood. But that came after Father Tolton's death. Um, but, but, he, but he did, because he did travel around, tried to raise money. He tried to open a, a church in Chicago. Um, uh, and uh, so he, had to, he went around and, and giving talks and things to try to, which he didn't want to do. But he did it to raise money for the church, and um, and uh, sadly he died before the church uh, was completed, uh, Saint Monica's, um, and it's it's not even around today. It never it never got finished, and then it eventually got demolished. Now, what, what what they had of it was demolished. Yeah. Now, we, we, you think of all this, it's it's hard to believe Father Tolton didn't have a lot of bitterness, a lot of hatred in him. No, he didn't. You know, and that's the beautiful part. That's why I think he he can really uh, shine forth as an, an example and a beacon of hope of how we respond to uh, to racial injustice today. You know, um, he responded with love and with understanding. I mean, when when those priests were mocking him, they were calling him all all kinds of derogatory names. The white priest, when he was serving as a priest in Quincy. And he wanted to sit down with them. He said, help me to understand. I'm a priest like you. Why are you saying this? He really wanted to, to, to understand why they were saying these things about him. When, when they're all priests, you know. Uh, 
So, so he had he really struggled with that. He could have responded with animosity. But here's the big thing for me: Why didn't he leave the church? I mean, putting up with racism his entire life, including in his priesthood, you would have thought that a guy like that would have said, "Oh, I'm out of here. I'm just going to go be Protestant. I'm going to just go do my own church or do whatever." But he didn't. He stayed in the Catholic Church. Why? Because he understood what so many Catholics don't understand today. What do we hear today? Oh, there's a a priest abuse scandal. I'm going to leave the church. Or, you know, I don't like what this decision, so I'm going to leave the church. People try and find excuses to leave. But he stayed because he understood that what the church teaches is true and good and beautiful, despite the people in the church who are all sinners in need of God's mercy. (laughs) <laughs> so that's what he understood. You know, so, so you focus on the teaching, not the people. And, and that's, what he held, uh, that's what he held on to, and that's why I think people we can draw strength and courage from today. Now, how did you get interested in Father Tolton? What, what, what was the spark? Yeah, that, that's an interesting story. You know, I, I grew up in, in New Jersey. Um, that, that's where I was. Uh, well, I was born in Barbados in the West Indies, but I, I grew up in New Jersey. And at the parish that I was in at the time, we were one of the few black families, and that was Christ the King in Hillside, New Jersey. Thriving parish when I was there as a kid and attended the school right across the street. And so during, and so back then, confirmations were done in seventh grade in the Archdiocese of Newark. And so they were going through all the saints that we can choose from. And I said, and I, it struck me that, wow, I, there's no saints that look like me. I'm not saying that St. Patrick or anything was wrong with those dudes, but I'm like, I like maybe is there someone that looks like me? So I back in the day I went to the library and looked through the card catalog, you know, because there was no internet back then or anything. And and and, and uh, as I was looking in, uh, on the shelf of books, I accidentally came across uh, a book on uh, a, a biography of Augustus, Father Augustus Tolton by Sister Carolyn Hemisat. It was called From Slave to Priest, and I said, "Oh, what is this?" And I picked it up and, and started reading and looking at it. And obviously I couldn't use Tolton because he's not a, he's not a saint, but I was like, wow, I've never heard of this guy before. Wow. This is interesting. And so I put it back up on the shelf and I kept looking uh, for other saints. And so fast forward now um, to, to 1990, 1990, was it, 19, about 2000 or so, 2000, 2002, Ignatius buys the rights to the original book about about Father Tolton from Slave to Priest and they republished it and they and since the the author, Sister Hemisath, is dead and the the priest who wrote the original forward is also deceased, they said, Hey, could you write a new forward for this new edition of the book? And I was like, I'd be honored to and so that kind of reintroduced me to Father Tolton again. And um and so I decided from that, I said, you know, I want to write something because there's already a biography. So to write another biography makes no sense because there's already book a, a book out about his life. So I said, why don't I write a book about lessons we can learn from his life that we can incorporate into our lives, into our church, to our families, to our culture today. So that's what, that's what the, uh, my book does. Again, the first chapter I do uh, give a summary of his life for those people who are not familiar with him. But throughout the book, I talk about how do we overcome racism? How do we build strong families? Um, what about the power of prayer? Um, how do we find joy in God's mercy? How do we overcome real hardships in life? And I, and I use Father Tolton's life as a lens to look at these modern problems and, 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 and show how we can find, like for example, how, how we can find meaning in suffering, how we build a culture of life. How do we do all that looking at it through the lens of Father Tolton's life? And so that, that's what I do in my book. Okay. Now, when you say culture of life, you know, some people I don't think understand exactly what you're meaning. What is a culture of life? All right. So in um, 1995, St. John Paul II wrote an incredible document called Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life. 
And in there, he introduces us to a concept we talked about, the culture of death. And so what he's talking about is all those things in our culture that are antithetical to life. Now, in Evangelium Vitae, he specifically is talking about the beginning and the end of life, so about abortion and, and contraception in the beginning of life and euthanasia, suicide at the end of life, although he does include, uh, there's a, a section of the encyclical where he does talk about, um, you know, uh, suicide and, and talks about um, uh, fetal stem cell research and in, in vitro fertilization, you know, um, all, all this, when we talk about a culture of, of death, all those things that are antithetical to building what then we, we juxtapose that with a culture of life. So, for example, we as Catholics, if, if a, a young girl got pregnant, the culture said, well, just, if she don't want the baby, she supports the baby. And we said, well, wait a minute, we're not creating a culture where everyone is accepted and loved and respected and protected, the mother and the child. How about we do that instead? Instead of killing someone, why don't we um, allow that person to live so that um, their full potential could be realized and actualized? You know, why, why don't we? So we, we call that kind of mentality a culture of life. Uh, and so that would be a simple way to explain that. All right. Now, how did you how did, how did you come into your own vocation? Well, you know, every every since I was little, and I remember going to church with my mom, and uh, my because my father was not a person of faith, but my mom was the first Catholic in our family. She was a Methodist who converted to the Catholic faith as a teenager, and I, I'm actually the first baptized Catholic in the history of our family. Um, because I'm the oldest child, and uh, my, my mom did not have to be rebaptized because she was already a Methodist, but so she just got confirmation of First Communion. But since I was uh, I was baptized two weeks after I was born, I always loved going to mass. You know, a lot of kids they fidget and they don't they don't pay attention and they're bored. But I was like, and I remember like being focused on what was going on at the altar. I didn't understand everything going on, but I was like, that's so cool. And so my mom noticed that, and so she asked me, do you want to be an altar server? I'm like, yeah, I want to be up there. So so uh, I became an altar server. I absolutely loved it. And I thought, you know, I could be. I think I might become a priest. And then I went to St. Benedict's Prep in Newark, New Jersey, were run by Benedictine monks. And so I ended up doing their Come and See program, uh, their vocations program, all four years of high school. So I went, I, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I got an academic scholarship to Notre Dame. I went to ND. I worked for a year, and then I came back to Jersey and joined the monastery. And I thought, you know, as a brother, I'm like, oh, this is great, you know, and I'm eventually going to be a priest. You know, this is awesome. And then uh, a little over a couple of years into my journey there in discernment, my mom got sick and almost died. My parents were divorced by then, so I left to take care of my mom. And when I was out of the monastery, I was supposed to go back, but when I was out of the monastery, I went to a wedding and met the woman who had to be my wife, who <laughs> was from Oregon. So, so that's how I got from Jersey to Oregon, right? So, because those of us from, from the East Coast, you know, as far as we're concerned, Philadelphia is the West Coast, right? So, <laughs> so uh, out, out here in Oregon, I discerned a call to the diaconate um, and uh, started the program in 1997 and was ordained in 2002. Um, and so, yeah, I've been a deacon, sir. And then I was, I had a law enforcement career. I was in law enforcement for 23 years. I was a police chief at the, uh, at the university of Portland. And then I left that in 2012 to speak and to write full time on the Catholic faith. Now I understand that there may be a movie being made or has it been made about father Tolton? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> that's a, that's a good point. So there's two things. One, EWTN, it wasn't a movie. I'd say it's more like a documentary on the life of Augustus Tolton. And also, um, St. Luke Productions, uh, the same production company that produced uh, the movie Therese, about St. Therese of Lisieux, they, um, uh, Leonardo DeFilippis is the person who's in charge. Of it. They do a lot of plays uh, based on the life of saints. And so they've done a, a really wonderful play on the life of Augustus Tolton. Really well done. 
Um, so if it, you know, well, once COVID, once we're through this whole period here and people can come out and, and, and they start traveling again, uh, if, if this is your area, I, I definitely recommend you see it. You get a wonderful perspective on Told This Life. So there's been the documentary and the, and the play, but not a movie as of yet. Okay, well, let's hope, you know, one comes out, right? Yeah, that'd be great. And what's interesting for the play, the actor who portrays uh, Father Tolton is not Catholic. <laughs> yeah, well, that, you know, that's the and, guy. Uh, so, yeah, he's, he's a wonderful actor, um, but but he's not Catholic. So, you know, who knows? You know, God may be working. So, Well, do you know the story, uh, Alec Guinness, you know him as an actor? Oh, yeah, Obi-Wan. Yeah, well, you know what? He played a priest in a movie, uh, Father Brown, Chesterton's Father Brown, and he converted, he said, as a result of, of playing the priest in that film. Oh, how about that? Wonderful. Wonderful. That's great. Yeah, so. Yes. Now, now, all right, so the name of your book, and where can we pick it up? All right, so it's called Father Augustus Tolton, The Slave Who Became the First African-American Priest. It's through uh, EWTN Publishing, so you can get it through EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, or you can get it on Amazon, or you can go to your um, local bookstore. Your local Catholic bookstore hopefully will have it there. Um, you know, it's always good to support, you know, those brick-and-mortar stores, you know, and uh, support our fellow Catholics, so... Um, from a Catholic bookstore, uh, it's also available as well. Now, can you get, is it still in pu a publication from Slave to Priest by Sister Carolyn? Yeah, so Sister Hemisat's book is is definitely still in publication. Ignatius Press would be the easiest, or Amazon or Ignatius Press would be the, the places where to get that. Your bookstore may have it, but they may have to order it for you. Um, uh, but it's a great book. And again, she, that is the definitive biography. Uh, on the life of Augustus Tolkien. Very, very well done. All right. You know, Deacon Harold, listen, our prayers are with you. Uh, thank you for what you're doing, because, you know, bringing history to life is part of what we do on our show, and I think you've got one of the unique personalities of, of the Civil War, post-Civil War era, and I think that story should be told, and thank you for telling it. Well, thank you for having me on the show. It's been great to be to, to be with you and to share uh, with your listeners a, li a little bit about this, hopefully, uh, future saint. Okay, very good. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Thanks again to Deacon Harold for, you know, sharing us a story about Father Tolton. And, you know, Beth, I know you, when, when you got off the air, we talked a little bit about, you know, that you had some ancestors in the Underground Railroad back in the uh, in the 1800s. And can you just tell us briefly, what was the Underground Railroad? I think there were many ways that the Underground Railroad existed. Um, the 
my ancestors, what I know of, they hauled freight from the Carolinas into Mississippi. They lived in Natchez. And this is my great-great-grandfather, McKithen, and he's married to a Truett. And the McKithens and Truitts did not believe in slavery. So the McKithens were hauling um, freight, cotton, lumber, sometimes families across the South. And when they get to Natchez, the Truitts had flatboats, and they would take freight, whatever, up the Mississippi to um, Illinois, St. Louis. So blacks, slaves were also, they would go with them just as if they were part of the the process of hauling something. They'd get to, say, South Carolina to Natchez, and then they'd get on the, the boats and go up to um, St. Louis, And those of you who joined us for the Civil War Roundtable of New York know that General Sedgley was talking about the fact that the, look, uh, there's, it's kind of hard to cut around it. The Civil War really was about slavery. And so us having had family in the South, but anti-slavery. Yeah, of course, there's quite a, there's still, uh, there's still a vociferous Dissent is that, as per Dr. Mitchum, who we had on the, the first couple of shows. In any event, let's get back to, you know, if you have any questions about estate planning and elder law, don't forget to email us. Michael, what's the email address again? Well, if you want to get in touch with us, it's askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's a reminder, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Connors is spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S, and we will always be here to answer your questions. And if you want to schedule an appointment, you know, right now with COVID and everything else, we're not as crowded in our schedule as we used to be. So don't be afraid to give us a call. You can schedule an appointment with me if you're willing to wait a couple of weeks or whatever in any one of our offices, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and Manhattan. Give us a call at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. We'll back back here next week at the same time and places. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away.